0: There are more carbon capture and storage projects in the pipeline now more than ever before. Over 250 projects are in various stages of development around the world, the vast majority of which are in the United States. That's thanks in part to the country being a first mover of the climate technology decades ago, along with ambitious climate policy enhancements that have taken off in more recent years. In parallel, the US government has been working with partners internationally to champion the CCS cause and support others to scale up their carbon management efforts as well. To speak with us about that and more is Brad Crabtree, Assistant Secretary for the U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management. Mr. Crabtree, thanks for joining us.
1: Great, Ruth. Thanks. Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to join you.
0: The United States is really uh, leading the way in terms of scaling up CCS projects to help tackle the, the climate challenge. Can you maybe set the scene for us? What steps have been taken in the U.S. that's really helped to enable project deployment and place the country as a front runner in the in the CCS realm?
1: Great. Well, there's uh, sort of two phases in the. There are now 12 uh, commercial scale operating carbon capture projects in the United States. Uh, they're across a number of industries and in different regions of the country, and they were largely developed, although not exclusively at private initiative in the early years. The first project started in 1972 in West Texas. And many people do not realize that fully commercial scale carbon capture transport and storage has a 50 year history. Um, Some of that early effort was focused on the role that CO2 can play in recovering oil from existing developed oil and gas fields. And so there was a motivation years ago in the oil and gas industry to capture and inject CO2 for oil production. But over time, they found that the CO2 was being geologically stored in the process. Later on in, the, in the, uh, the our carbon management program here in the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management at the Department of Energy started back, I believe, it was in 1997 or 98. So there's literally a quarter century of history of, of the US federal government supporting uh, research, development, and deployment of these technologies. So of those 12 projects, several of them all came about because the, through the Department of Energy in our office, the federal government invested with industry in commercial scale projects to demonstrate the technology in the ethanol industry, in hydrogen production from natural gas, and most recently in power generation from with coal. So that's how we got our start. and. Now there's been, you mentioned, over 200 projects globally. Well over 100 have been publicly announced in the United States. And that's a tremendous upsurge from this historic level of deployment. And what's really changed is policy has fueled that. Um, You know, there's a lot of discussion uh, in the debate around climate. And when carbon management comes up, there's this perception that there has been extensive governmental support for carbon capture and storage. Um, That's a view in the United States, you see it in Europe and around the world. If you actually look at the reality of governments investment in technologies that are necessary to address climate change, carbon management has received very little public policy support. Uh, In the United States, it really only became significant in 2018 when we reformed and expanded a federal tax credit, which is called the Section 45Q tax credit. and That was the result of years of effort. And um, prior to that, um, there had the wind energy production tax credit for wind, industry, wind energy in the United States started in 1992. So we have 30 years of support for wind energy. The the tax credit for solar technologies uh, was implemented in 2005. So, so carbon management and the significant policy support has come later. After that initial expansion of the tax credit, then in 2020, we had what was called the Energy Act passed, and that was a real revamping of policy to support carbon management technology, as well as a lot of other uh, climate essential technologies. So for the first time with the Energy Act, we were authorized not only to invest in research and development, but also work with industry to invest in commercial scale demonstration of the technologies and also the infrastructure that's needed. Uh, and then a lot of funding was authorized as well. Then in 2021, our bipartisan infrastructure legislation passed, and that provides $62 billion on energy and climate to the Department of Energy over five years. 12 billion of that is specifically dedicated to carbon management. Uh, It's a very large amount of money over five years to invest in the core carbon capture technologies in industry and power generation, but also direct air capture, things like carbon conversion, but importantly, the hub development component as well, not just capturing the CO2, but the whole value chain. So we have a program uh, for financing the build out of CO2 transport infrastructure region by region. And we also have, that's about $2 billion. And then we also have two and $2.5 and billion dollars to build out regional geologic storage sites. And so That really deals with the the technology demonstration and infrastructure side. And then last year, the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And and that's where the financial incentives for private investors come in. And there's a package of over $400 billion, uh, nearly $400 billion in tax credits spanning a whole range of, of technologies to address climate. Further improvements to the 45Q tax credit are in that legislation. And um, it was, I think, that second round of improvements to the 45Q tax credit that really jump-started this wave of project announcements that you referred to in your question. So that's a a little bit of the background on, on the policy framework, but it's that combination of federal funding in the infrastructure bill that helps reduce the risk of demonstrating these technologies commercially and building out the infrastructure coupled with federal incentives through tax credits to drive private investment in the projects themselves. Um, and, and that's something we've never had before. And frankly, in that to this degree is not yet available in any any other country. Although, as we maybe talk about over the course of this conversation, other countries are starting to look at that combination of making these investments and coupling that with incentives for, invest, for private investment.
0: And I know in the United States, CCSC's support across the political spectrum. Why do you think that is and how do you hope to continue seeing that?
1: Well, so I think in the United States, given the the industries we have across the heartland of this country between the coasts, carbon management is not only essential from a climate standpoint. If we're going to have a pathway to net zero emissions by mid-century in the United States, it has to be a pathway that that creates opportunity for all of these industries. And so that's one of the reasons why we see this tremendous support from conservatives to progressives across the political spectrum in the United States. Um, but, here's the but, we have to deliver with real facts on the ground, with real projects that have real emissions reductions, real economic benefits, uh, tangibly support both the, the preservation of high wage jobs and the creation of new ones and provide measurable environmental and economic benefits for the communities that live right next to these facilities in many regions of our country. And if we don't deliver on that, this momentum and broad support will not be sustained. So I just think that's that's really important to emphasize uh, is that it, you know seeing is believing. And so there's there's enough historical experience and successful projects that got our Congress to support this round of legislation. But for that to continue and build, we're going to have to turn around very quickly some really important projects and some hub developments in different parts of the US. And that's also true in other parts of the world. When I'm in Europe, I hear the same thing. The, the, there's a real felt need on the part of policymakers and industry to deliver on these expectations.
0: I, I kind of want to get back to to the tax credit that you'd mentioned uh, with respect to 45Q and those enhancements. How did you, or how did, I guess, the U.S. government decide that now was a good time to move forward with those enhancements? And further, maybe, could you give us a little bit more details on, in terms of what those enhancements are? Actually, it
1: was the culmination of 10, t- literally 10, more than 10 years of effort. The first, the first work of, uh, with Congress to uh, to strengthen the 45Q tax credit started in 2011. And it literally took seven years to get to the first legislation that started to strengthen 45Q, but didn't go far enough. There wasn't enough financial value and there were too many constraints on the use of the tax credit. So we saw some response in the market in terms of new projects starting to be developed, but it wasn't enough. And so there was a lot of effort to engage members of Congress from all regions of the country to provide uh, some targeted improvements to the tax credit to really drive deployment at levels that would matter from a climate standpoint. And I can just mention what some of those are. In 2018, the, the, the value of the tax credit was raised to $50 per metric ton of CO2 stored in the saline geologic formation to what we call dedicated geologic storage. And that could be CO2 from industrial facilities or power plants and a full $180 uh, per ton uh, for CO2 captured from ambient air through direct air capture and stored geologically. And then there's also a tax credit for geologic storage that's done through enhanced oil recovery and Congress increased the value of that from $35 to $60. And again, I wanna be clear though, it's not an incentive for oil production, it's you actually have to demonstrate the CO2 has been permanently stored through that process and you can claim the credit. So now we have, especially with the, the dedicated storage, the saline storage credits, we have that funding at a level where it can really drive investment in projects across a range of industries. In some industries now, things like gas processing, ethanol production, fertilizer production, hydrogen production, the level of the tax credit is high enough that commercial projects can proceed without other governmental assistance in most instances. Things like cement, steel, basic chemicals, um, those costs will be a little bit higher and there may be a need for other policies like the demonstration dollars that we have in our infrastructure bill. Um, And, of course, direct air capture is an even more nascent technology than carbon capture, and so that's why there's $180 a ton to really drive innovation in that sector as well. So that's the dollar value, but it isn't just the amount of money. The The other important thing is any financial incentive are the investment signals you're sending and that kind of investment horizon that you have. And for too long, our tax credits in the US would would be available for a few years, and then they would expire, and then they'd be available again. And it's really hard to plan and invest around those short timeframes. So perhaps the most important thing that Congress did in this Inflation Reduction Act is they provided a 10-year investment window for these tax credits. So between now and the end of 2032, any project that begins construction as a matter of law is guaranteed to be eligible for the tax credit. That's an enormous amount of time for industry to plan what are large complex projects. And so I think that time frame, as much as the value of the credit is what's driving this enormous upsurge of interest in project development. The other thing I would just note is that the tax credit also has a direct pay component. So normally with a tax credit, you use the tax credit to offset taxable income. You reduce your tax bill with the government. So the only way you can use the tax credit is if you have taxable income, and a lot of projects that are just getting started by definition don't have taxable income. So that's an investment challenge for tax credits. Congress recognized that, and so for, for the first five years of any carbon capture or direct air capture project, they will get the value of the tax credit as a direct payment on their tax return as opposed to having to offset it with taxable income. So that's another major driver of investment. It'll make the financing of these projects easier. The final piece is that the eligibility of the tax credit was expanded. Early on when 45Q was first developed years ago, the view was, well, these projects have to be really large to matter from a climate standpoint. So there was a minimum 500,000 metric ton threshold for projects. Then in 2018, those thresholds were reduced somewhat, but not enough. There are some industries where facilities just don't have emissions at that level. And so entire industries were excluded from the tax credit. So Congress recognized that given the diversity of industries, we shouldn't have these thresholds for uh, that rule out certain facilities. So now the tax credit's available to Essentially, any industry that can commercially capture and store their CO two so that's a that's a great opportunity uh, for certain industries that previously weren't able to participate. So those that's just kind of an overview of the sort of process of reforming expanding that tax credit. Maybe the final observation I would add is that because carbon capture benefits uh, traditional energy producing industries. Heavy industry manufacturing it has really broad political support in Congress. Some of the highest, uh, the highest job uh, blue collar, what we call blue collar jobs in the United States, work that is has high degree of labor union participation and so forth. Uh, carbon capture disproportionately benefits those industries with those highest high, highest wage jobs, and so you have this really significant coalition of of members of Congress from states that haven't traditionally benefited from climate policy in quite the same way, labor unions, and environmental and conservation organizations that see the importance of reducing emissions from, especially from the industrial sector and the importance of carbon capture in, in decarbonizing otherwise hard to abate industries. So there's also that broad political coalition that until, the 2018 legislation had never really been assembled around climate policy in the United States.
0: The benefits are, are clearly going to be far-reaching. Um, under the, the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, that's uh, how Not it's fair. often referred to, um, there's also $12 that's that's allocated towards carbon management. Um, What types of projects or maybe opportunities are you seeing um, or hoping to see through that funding?
1: Well, there's a continued need for research and development and resources for that, to be sure. But I think the real innovation in the infrastructure legislation is I, I mentioned earlier that policy changed in 2020 to allow the Department of Energy and the federal government to invest more with industry in commercial scale demonstration, the technology. And if you think about projects that can cost hundreds of millions or even up to a billion dollars or more, there's a lot of commercial risk in being the first or second company to deploy a technology in a given industry, especially with cost projects that are that expensive. So there's really a need for, for the government to co-invest with industry to bring those technologies to the marketplace. The first thing that I'm hopeful about is that we now have the ability to support the first, second, third of a kind demonstration of, of technologies in certain industries. So for example, cement, steel, uh, our, our, our industries are absolutely crucial in terms of meeting our global, national, and global climate goals. Um but there's only one commercial operating commercial scale example of carbon captured a steel plant in the world and that's in the united arab emirates and as you know there are projects under construction in cement but not yet operational so there's a real urgent need to deploy those technologies sector by sector at commercial scale and demonstrate to industry and to investors that this path is feasible and so i think that that's a really important outcome of this legislation, in that $12 billion, there's various funding streams to support the the commercial gem- demonstration, the technology. There's a big chicken and egg problem with carbon management. Um, it's very hard to develop and finance a carbon capture project if you can't be confident that you'll have a. a, a opportunity available to transport and then ultimately geologically store that CO2. Similarly, it doesn't make a lot of sense to invest in in the permitting and development of a geologic storage site if you're unsure about that there'll be a supply of captured CO2 emissions available to store. Where's the business model? And so you really need the capture, the transport, and the storage to develop more or less in parallel. And that's really hard in the private sector. That's one of the reasons that there were so many false starts with carbon capture projects uh, and to a lesser degree geologic storage projects around the world, because sometimes other parts of the value chain weren't coming together at the same time. And it was very hard to finance as a result. The the really exciting part about the infrastructure law supplemented by the tax credits is you can have companies... In different industries and in different parts of this value chain, can jointly proceed with their projects in a coordinated way. And to the extent that we can, as an agency, we're trying to harness our funding to support that integration. So, for example, I mentioned the the two and a half billion dollar geologic storage component of that twelve billion. We have a very clear strategy and policy that we are going to be supporting the development of regional geologic storage sites. Region by region, we're requiring a minimum uh, storage potential of 50 million tons over a 30-year period, and that's just a minimum. We anticipate that many of these regional projects will each store hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 over their lifespan. If they don't serve multiple industries and infrastructure, we won't fund them. The whole point is that they need to be part of an emerging hub. And similarly, when we're getting applications for CO2 transport, we want to we see how that CO2 transport will be tied into multiple potential carbon capture facilities, ideally spanning more than one industry, and even, even better, connecting more than one geologic storage location. So the idea would be that over time, not only do you get hubs and clusters, but you get multiple forms of transport, multiple geologic storage sites, and multiple capture locations, all in the same system so that it's more resilient, it's robust. And and here's the key thing, economies of scale. If companies and industries are sharing this infrastructure together, just just like industry shares infrastructure on the grid today, you're reducing the overall costs for each market participant because of that shared infrastructure, those economies of scale. And so I'm hoping that 10, 15 years out, when we look back, we'll see that these policies have made carbon management a commercially available option for managing CO2 emissions at scale at every major region of the country.
0: Uh, The point you make when it comes to, tied to coordination, I think is absolutely critical, both across industry, but within governments as well. A few state leaders have already expressed their interest to leverage some of the, the supports tied to the funding and 45Q and so on. We recently saw Colorado and, and Wyoming sign a MOU with the aim to work together to deploy CDR efforts. How important are these collaborations and do you hope or expect to see more of it in the future?
1: They're critical. Let me Before I answer the question about yes. states, let me start by also just acknowledging that we're still figuring out how we can be better coordinated in our own implementation as a department, as the Department of Energy. How can we work across offices and across sectors with these different funding tools that we have to to support a more integrated approach? So we're still learning ourselves. I want to be clear about that because this is not how, this is not how our department functioned in the past. In fact, we created uh, an entire new office for infrastructure that is cross-cutting. And so we're trying to build into the very structure of our department, this approach that you see hopefully reflected more and more on the ground. So, but but back to the states, in the US system, the US is a very much federal system. The states play a really important role in carbon management. They regulate uh, the siting of most of the infrastructure. Uh, also, they need to. We have federal regulation for geologic storage, but states also have to have in the U.S. system a, a regulatory framework as well before companies will be willing to invest in the development of geologic storage sites. So um, you mentioned Wyoming and Colorado. I'm I'm actually from North Dakota, which is a, a you know a neighbor of, of of Wyoming in the same what we call the Northern Plains region of the United States. My state of North Dakota was the first state uh, in, in the United States get approval from our US Environmental Protection Agency to permit geologic storage sites. Wyoming was the second state. Uh, Colorado doesn't yet have that authority from delegated from our, our federal Environmental Protection Agency, but they've applied for it. And one of the interesting things about Wyoming Colorado, Montana, and North Dakota, is that they are already part of uh, kind of a historic carbon hub that evolved over time. You have CO2 pipelines that originate in Wyoming and span out to uh, Northern Colorado, Montana, and the border of North Dakota. And so already Wyoming and Colorado are ca- connected by CO2 transport infrastructure. So one of the ways that they can coordinate is that um, they can share geologic storage sites with that common infrastructure. And so Wyoming has the ability to permit these projects directly. You could imagine a, faci- a carbon capture facility in Colorado being developed and then benefiting from that 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 storage site across the border in Wyoming. But the key thing is, is that the infrastructure shared. Hubs don't, there there will be some states that will have a contained hub within their state boundaries, but most hubs will cross state boundaries in the United States. And so states need to have common regulatory frameworks. They have to coordinate around especially siting of CO2 transport infrastructure because it's going to cross state lines and each state has to site their own part of it and get a a, a site permit for that. And then we have a lot of land that's owned by the federal government, especially in the western United States. So there's a need for for federal government and state governments to work together with each other and and with federal government to to do the permitting of projects as well so that that's both an opportunity but
0: also a challenge and permitting itself is a bit of a hot topic in in the united states um is in in the event that there's a significant scale up which of course we not just hope but we expect there to be from a policy and permitting perspective can the u.s at this stage manage a wave of additional projects and circumvent any issues tied to projects being approved Mm -hmm. um, and there being capture projects but perhaps not being able to store it or vice versa how would you tackle that issue or is that an issue at all
1: it is an issue and I think uh, to be fully candid it's I think it's our biggest challenge Um, I would say actually there's two challenges I'll talk about both of them you've identified permitting the other is local community and stakeholder acceptance. I'll, I'll, I'll go to, and they're related, but, but I'll start with permitting. As I mentioned in the first question, carbon capture, transport and storage has been safely, effectively and fully proven at commercial scale going back decades. But there's a huge difference between fully proven at commercial scale and deployed at climate scale the scale where it actually makes a difference from a climate standpoint and that's where we have to get to well permitting has to get to climate scale as well it's not good enough to permit a handful of projects the scale of deployment we need for carbon cap carbon management to achieve the emissions reductions that the intergovernmental panel on climate change and the international energy agency and others say is necessary to you know stay within reach of 1.5 degrees and get to mid-century decarbonization that's a lot of permitting. And it's, a, it's both the number of permits, but also the time timeframe within, within which they get done. And we have the double time pressure in the United States. I mentioned how exciting this 10 year window is for projects that begin construction to be eligible for the tax credit. Well, if they can't get a permit, they can't get financed, they won't be constructed, and they can't enter commercial operation and can't claim the tax credit while it's still available. So the clock is ticking. Um, we have a situation where our, our U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has approved a few geologic storage permits uh, under what our, was called our Class 6 Geologic uh, underground injection program. There are over 100 Class 6 applications pending at this time. So you mentioned we talked about over 100 projects being announced publicly. Well, there's also over 100 geologic storage permits that are are in the queue. And so there's a number of things we're doing uh, in partnership with our EPA to try to ramp up this permitting. Uh, one is the Congress provided additional funding to build capacity, not only EPA, literally people to 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 help staff the regional offices and in, in, in the in the headquarters at the at, at EPA to do the permitting, also to states to help them develop the capacity to do this geologic permitting at the state level. As I mentioned earlier, the other thing is we have 17 national labs in our Department of Energy, and there's a lot of science and engineering expertise in those labs. And so we have a program, a partnership with EPA, where we're dedicating our our federal lab staff. To support the permit development and completion, and that whole process. Uh, the other thing we're doing is we're supporting the efforts of states to get ready to apply for what what is called in the U.S. system primacy, where they can do the they can do the permits at the state level, uh, so long as they meet federal standards. And so I mentioned North Dakota and Wyoming having that, Louisiana as well in the process of applying, Texas, Colorado, and some other states are all doing this. And that will help also accelerate the permitting. So that's the the permitting part of it. The other part though, that is equally important and probably equally, if not more challenging is local community and stakeholder acceptance. Um, We're seeing growing opposition to carbon management projects in what we call our Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana, principally, but also Mississippi, Alabama to a lesser degree. Those are areas where there's a huge concentration of oil and gas production, refining, chemical production. Uh, A lot of the communities have experienced over decades historic rates of pollution, disproportionate levels of pollution in their communities. And they're concerned that retrofitting carbon capture projects will, yes, manage greenhouse gas emissions, but what about the other pollution they're experiencing? there's also concerns in my region of the United States. I mentioned the Northern Plains of, you know, the Dakotas, Minnesota, Wyoming, uh, Iowa, Nebraska. There are some very large carbon CO2 transport and storage projects proposed in that region of the country that would span multiple states, and we're seeing farmers and ranchers opposing CO2 pipelines. I would note that it's not just carbon management projects. I am. Um, I have a ranch in North Dakota, and my very conservative rancher neighbors, um, where we have a number of wind farms in, in in our immediate area, they are opposed to any further wind energy development, and they are also currently opposing a CO2 pipeline. So it, these this growing reluctance to accept projects at the at the local level is is not limited to carbon management, and it's a it's also not limited to a particular community or political perspective and so we need to take that challenge very seriously if we look at the potential of our infrastructure legislation and our inflation reduction act to stimulate incentivize project development in carbon management renewables and all these other areas we're gonna we're gonna have to build a lot of local support for these projects to move forward at levels of development we've never seen historically so we have a, a huge effort underway. We're changing how we work at the Department of Energy. We're no longer just a research and development shop. We are engaging actively with communities. We're providing analysis, we're providing information about technologies and infrastructure about risks and benefits so that communities and stakeholders have more information. There's a lot of legitimate concerns, as I've mentioned, but there's also a lot of misrepresentation of the technology, its performance, its safety. And we need to make sure that when communities and stakeholders make decisions about projects, they're doing it with with real facts and science. The other thing we're doing, and this is perhaps the most important, is for the first time, we are prioritizing communities in in our project funding. Uh, For these larger demonstration projects, uh, 20% of our scoring of applications from companies relates to societal and community impacts, community benefits. And we're asking for for plans from the the companies for for community engagement, diversity, equity, inclusion, environmental justice, and workforce development, all four of these areas. And so whether these companies will be successful in getting funding and demonstration dollars from the Department of Energy now increasing will depend on how they can demonstrate that their projects will be viewed favorably by communities and show real environmental and economic workforce benefits for those communities. That's a, an absolute transformation of how we do our work. And it, it starts in the, in the applications or tenders for funding. We call them solicitations, uh, funding opportunity announcements to the selection of the projects, to the negotiation of the wards, and ultimately the ongoing monitoring of compliance with those commitments that have been made. The goal here, is that this next wave of projects, especially the ones that we're funding as the Department of Energy or helping to fund, are best in class. And that's not just best in class in terms of carbon capture performance or emissions reductions, but also local environmental improvements, community economic development, workforce development, all those all those metrics for, for benefits and success.
0: It sounds like, you know, garnering local support is happening at a wide scale, and um, but my understanding is, you know, stakeholder engagement is not just being limited domestically, but also internationally as well. The Biden administration recently launched the Carbon Management uh, Challenge, calling on world leaders to join the U.S. in the effort to deploy uh, carbon management technologies. What has the response been so far, and how far do you want that uh, to progress?
1: So the response has been very positive. I actually um, see if I can get the list here. The countries we have: Australia, Brazil, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, the European Union, Japan, Norway, Saudi Arabia, Sweden, the United Arab Emirates, the UK, and of course the US. So it's a pretty important cross section of countries, including um, you know some of the real climate leaders in the world today, as as well as you know. Major oil and gas producing countries. I was also really, really pleased that um, Brazil just signed on last month. And so we have one of the key emerging economies in the world, also the only emerging economy in the world that has a large scale commercial uh, carbon capture and storage enterprise going on offshore. Uh, in fact, about 20, 25% of the world's carbon capture and storage is being done by Brazil. So I think it was hugely important, but also Egypt, critical. Uh, emerging economy. It's really important that the uh, that the global South participate. Uh, I'm headed to the uh, the African Climate Summit in Nairobi, and we're going to be talking to ministers from African countries about their participation and what they would want to accomplish in this effort. Uh, from my standpoint, uh, we've we've made a lot of progress, as we've been talking about on policy and project development in North America. In um, in Europe, uh, increasingly East Asia, um, but we have to come up with a path for financing deployment of carbon capture and the necessary infrastructure uh, in emerging and low income countries, or this just won't work. Uh, this has to be a global enterprise, and so the the carbon management challenge is a is a is a is a vehicle to bring everybody together around this effort, and so it's not just a goal; it's also to create a a home, a place for like-minded countries from all regions of the world to work together on a range of strategies. Uh, One of the things we're going to talk to the African countries about is a concessional finance work stream uh, within the carbon management challenge so that they can have a place at the table, which is essential. Um, I would just say that although we're we've seen enormous progress in the level of awareness and support for carbon management globally i mean it's not only growing year by year but but kind of month by month at this point it still is not viewed in the same way as some other essential uh, carbon mitigation pathways like renewables and ending deforestation and things like that so one of the goals of the climate. Carbon management challenge is really to elevate carbon management is one of the essential pathways for keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius in reach. And the the, the focus that's required to do that, um, the the IEA came out with a um, with analysis here recently suggesting that if the world is to stay on track for 1.5 and net zero emissions by 2050, we need to have 1.2 gigatons of carbon management by 2030. That's obviously a huge undertaking. The carbon management challenge isn't set that per se as the goal, but recognizes that we need that kind of gigaton scale deployment sooner rather than later if we're we're going to meet those climate goals. The other thing I would just say is that the carbon management challenge also brings in countries that haven't traditionally been at the center of climate negotiations or have been perhaps more resistant because the carbon management technologies opportunities to retool carbon-intensive industries for the future, and I think that's attractive to a whole range of countries around the world that may that may not see as much opportunity in some of the other mitigation pathways. So I think this build this expands the tent uh, for global climate action. I, the final thing I want to say, and this is really really important, there's a debate suggest that's the suggestion that. There's an effort underway to elevate carbon management or prioritize carbon management above other carbon mitigation strategies. That is not the strategy. The strategy is we need to, with respect to renewables, ending deforestation, efficiency, and all these other pathways, we need to be doubling down on those and doing a lot more. At the same time, in a complementary way, we need to be uh, lifting up carbon management and providing more attention and resources as we continue to ramp up these these other efforts.
0: With COP28 approaching, takes place in the United Arab Emirates in November. Is that an opportunity for, for your team or the US government to maybe have conversations with the countries that perhaps that you're mentioning here um, and perhaps move the needle forward on the carbon management challenge um, or on other items tied to CCS?
1: The answer is yes. Uh, we're having those conversations now, but but this is not a, a, a COP focused strategy. Um, we we were in Goa at the G20 and the, the clean energy ministerial meetings uh, focused on on uh, on the carbon management challenge. Uh, I made a visit to uh, to Malaysia at the end of June and met with ministers from Southeast Asian countries talking about the carbon management challenge. I mentioned will be in Nairobi as well. We see this as an ongoing effort, not culminating in the COP, but going beyond the COP and and again creating a vehicle for countries that see carbon management as an essential part of how they meet their climate goals, working collectively to to mobilize resources and commitments. So so I'd say yes and is the is the answer to your question. Clearly, the United Arab Emirates is a host they have commercial scale carbon capture projects already operating they're one of the leaders in the world today so they have a particular interest in expertise and that region obviously has an interest in in carbon management so so that is uh, it will definitely be a theme in that regard at the cop as well
0: so we've established so far that the united states is um you know, the front runner when it comes to CCS deployment. But are there any CCS policy frameworks or or projects that you find compelling elsewhere abroad that's maybe worth mirroring, and if not mirroring, anything that you find notable? Yeah,
1: and I, I, this is actually really important. You know, yes, the we're proud of the infrastructure bill in the Inflation Reduction Act and how after many, many years of false starts on climate policy in the United States, um, political parties and industry and NGOs and others came together around this legislation and, and got it passed. And it's, a, it's enormously important. The United States is the second largest emitter of CO2 in the world, and we're the largest oil and gas producer. We have a particular obligation to act. And so all that is really important. But we're also a really big country. So whatever we do needs to be at a very large scale. And I think there's a risk that the relative commitments – of some other countries get overlooked. So I was in Norway last fall for the EU CCUS event and gave remarks. And I, I took a moment to compare Norway's investment in carbon management as reflected by their their Longship or Northern Lights projects, roughly a, a $2 billion US investment. Well, Norway has 5 million, million plus people compared to over 300 million in the United States. And I did the numbers before my speech, and I I compared what if the United States were to make a relatively large commitment on a per capita basis to carbon management that would equal Norway's, we would have to spend $140 billion. We're, we're committing 12. So I think just really important to lay that out. Denmark, I haven't done the math, but Denmark has also on a per capita basis made enormous commitments and and they're not the only ones. So so that's just that doesn't get enough attention. I wanted to emphasize that. As far as the projects themselves, I just mentioned Northern Lights or the lawn Ship project. That's a full chain, you know, uh carbon captured industrial facilities on the coast offloading onto on to maritime transport the CO2, bring it to a CO2 terminal, storing the CO2, piping it deep underground, under the ocean for geologic storage. Norway is invested in the whole value chain to show that it can be done and to create confidence worldwide in this opportunity. And that's enormously important. It's not as far along, but the Dutch commitment around the port of Rotterdam, a similar ambition and importance. I would just note, I think it was was it this week or last last week's announcement in the UK real financial commitments to the two hub projects. We were expecting that, but but it's it's been it's been made. Um, Saudi Arabia has made hub commitments that are, don't get much attention, but the in Jubail in the eastern province, um, the Saudis have committed to sto- capturing and storing nine million tons of CO2 a year by 2027 reaching 47 million tons per year is their goal by 2035. That is climate ambition by any definition. Um, And and there are other countries as well. I'll I'll end on something I'm especially excited about. Uh, I I have a personal connection to Malaysia. And I, I was able to, as I mentioned, go back to Malaysia here recently. And I was so impressed and so excited to see how far the regional hub discussions have matured in Southeast Asia. There's a major proposal for an offshore hub off the north coast of Borneo and East Malaysia in Sarawak, uh, also off the coast, uh, east coast of peninsular Malaysia. Uh, Indonesia has multiple efforts underway. Thailand is, is moving fast and thinking about projects. And these are hubs that would involve the participation of Japan, possibly Korea, maritime transport of CO2 between countries, trading carbon credits to finance the projects. I mean, this is innovative and exciting by any definition, and it's happening in Southeast Asia and i you know meeting with ministers i was very complimentary of the of the vision and ambition we're seeing in these emerging economies and i i think if these projects move forward that's going to transform how people perceive both challenge and the opportunity and i'm not skeptical that we will but we do have to follow through
0: yeah it's an exciting time for ccs very both exciting. in the united states and and globally so we look forward to seeing that continue It is very exciting. I've been involved
1: in it for 20 years. There's been so many ups and downs, and there's never been a moment like this. It's so positive. Thanks for joining us, Brad. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Ruth.
0: For more details about this episode and podcast, visit globalccsinstitute.com and head to the Multimedia Library.